Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to Propaganda Watch. I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. And this week we are going to be talking about, appropriately enough for a series entitled Propaganda Watch, the father of modern-day propaganda, the man who literally wrote the book, Propaganda, Edward Bernays. And I know that's a name that will need no introduction to my regular audience, as they will already be familiar with his life and work from my numerous previous reports on Bernays. But if you are f unfamiliar with this name, I would humbly suggest you type the name Bernays, B-E-R-N-A-Y-S, into the Corbett Report search bar, and you'll find a number of reports that I've done on his, on the man and his work in the past. Very long story short, Edward Bernays was the American nephew of Sigmund Freud and used Freud's psychoanalytical techniques and insights to hone his skills on shaping the public's uh, understanding on a number of issues, mostly for his corporate clients, sometimes for his government clients. So this is a man well practiced in the art of propaganda, an evil science perhaps, but a science and an art nonetheless, and Bernays was particularly skilled at it in a number of ways. And you will recall last week on, when I was talking to Peter Quinones on the, great, uh, on the Free Man Beyond the Wall podcast about the Great Reset, at the very end of that conversation, Peter Quinones sprung on me the information that, did you know Edward Bernays was on David Letterman's show back in the 1980s? And... <laughs> If I ever did know that, it was certainly not something that I can remember knowing. It certainly surprised me. And so I did dig it up, and I included the little 30-second soundbite of that appearance in the show notes for that conversation. But a couple of helpful listeners pointed me in the direction of the full eight-minute segment of Edward Bernays on Letterman. And... It's instructive in a number of ways, so I will, of course, include the link to that video in the show notes for this uh, edition of Propaganda Watch. I would really suggest you go and watch the full clip. It's only eight minutes, but it's, I think, an instructive eight minutes for people who are interested in propaganda. Um, we'll examine a few different passages from that video here today, but uh, before we do so, might I suggest this is one of those videos that, you know, you never know, it's, I'm sure it's breaking some sort of copyright or there could be some kind of claim on it. So if you are interested in preserving some of the texts in the digital library of Alexandria that is on fire at this moment, might I humbly suggest this particular video might be a candidate for you to flex your muscles that you are now learning how to use about how to save and download uh, videos and other important documents to your hard drive so that you physically have access to them regardless of whether or not they are disappeared. I would humbly suggest this might be a candidate um, to include in your archive. So get to work. Um, now let's take a look at just a few examples of interesting moments from this conversation. As I say, the entire conversation is worth watching, but I, there's a few things that jumped out at me, starting with something that Peter Quinones himself mentioned when he brought up this, uh, this video on our conversation. He talked about the way that Bernays introduced himself at the beginning. Well, you. You're the father of uh, public relations. What we're dealing with really is the concept that people will believe me more if you call me doctor. Oh, I see. <laughs> so, Letterman asks him, a doctor of what? I'll explain this for people. And his response, people will believe me more if you call me doctor. Now, that's that's actually an interesting insight for more, more than just the surface level of the way that we would understand that. Uh, at, at first glance, what is happening here is essentially the old, if I put on the white cloak of the 
Dr. Priesthood, or if I call my, if I get you to call me by that title, you will respect my authority more. And that is true um, so far as it goes. But it actually speaks to, I think, a deeper part of the way that this propaganda is functioning. Uh, because we understand there is such thing as authority, earned authority on a subject. Someone who has spent their entire life studying and practicing a certain art or science will have a greater degree of authority on that subject than someone who's just read a book about it once. You know, trust me, I, I can wing it. Uh, we would tend to go with the person who's actually studied it. If you want brain surgery, you're probably going to go for a brain surgeon. If you want your car fixed properly, you're probably going to go to a car mechanic, etc. Now, of course, we all know there are different levels and of abilities within those uh, professions, but someone who's been practicing it a long time has this earned sense of authority. But a Mr. Bernays can come along, Mr. Bernays can come along, and... Uh, call me Dr. Dr. Bernays, which is technically kind of true, as he goes on to state. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's a good and idea. And actually, I am doctor because two universities gave me honorary degrees. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah, but not really. I mean, not a real doctor doctor who actually earned his credentials. These were honorary degrees that were bestowed on him for his magnificent work shaping the American public mind. Now, I think this is actually interesting on a deeper level because it speaks to a technique that has been used for a very long time to swap out the real for the counterfeit as a way of fundamentally performing an operation, almost an alchemy, if you will, uh, in the public imagination on certain issues. For example, the prime example of this that comes to mind is the gold certificates that the the bankers, the original bankers, the people who would hold your gold in their vaults and they would give you a certificate. Here's your certificate, the claim for that gold that's in our vault now. Here it is. And people take that gold certificate and they start to think of the certificate as the value of their asset rather than the actual gold in the vault. No, this certificate proves I have that gold in the vault and here's the claim on it and it can be changed in for that gold at any time. Therefore, this certificate, well, this is essentially like the gold. So now we can start trading the certificates around because I know if I give you this certificate, then you'll know that you can go to the gold uh, vault and you can get that gold out of the vault. And so why don't we just trade in the certificates? It's a lot easier than carrying gold around everywhere. And by that operation, by that maneuver, the people who own the, the banks, the early iteration of the banks, understand, oh, the, the certificates are trading as money at this point, so we can issue more than we actually have in the bank. We only have so much gold, but we can issue more certificates, and as long as not everyone comes at the same time, well, it'll be okay. We'll never have to face the consequences of that. What could go wrong? And that's, that's, again, the similar type of operation, substituting the counterfeit for the real and getting people to think of the counterfeit as, as in, in some sense, more, more real than the real itself. And once that happens, once that switch is flipped, then the public is essentially beholden to the counterfeit. And in this case, it's the counterfeit doctor. It seems like a simple ob observation, but it actually operates at a much deeper level. And we start to see how this sort of thing comes into play when we start to examine some of the work that Bernays actually did. And as I say, I've done a lot of work on Bernays over the years, so you'll be familiar with some of the stories. Here's a different story 
that I don't believe I've gone over on the podcast before about one of his early clients, Procter & Gamble, and how he helped them with their problems uh, with soap. Who were some of your early accounts? Who, did, who were clients of yours back in the very well, beginning? in the very beginning, Procter & Gamble was one of our accounts. Mm -hmm. They had a white floating soap called ivory soap. Right, it, that's, that was the selling point. It would actually float in the bathtub or wherever you were bathing, I guess. That's right. And they came to me one day and said that mothers uh, washed the faces of the children and they hated soap because their eyes were stinging from the soap. And that when people grew up, they wouldn't use any soap right. because they get conditioned in childhood, according to Freud, my uncle. That's, so you're, you get ahead of yourself, but it's true, your, your uncle was Sigmund Freud. And so we made a research, made a study, and we found a sculptor, Brenda Putnam, who used soap instead of wax in developing her sculpture. Mm -hmm. And it then occurred to me that if we could develop soap sculpture competitions, I went to a psychologist and he said every child has a creative instinct. I went to a psychologist and he said every child has a creative instinct. <laughs> wow, that was, that was money well spent on that psychologist. Wow, thank you for telling me that, doctor. I trust you because you are a psychologist, therefore an authority. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> again, think about what he's saying there. And actually that relates to a point that I think we'll make a bit later, but hold on, let's finish this story. Some sculptors to be judges and had soap sculpture competitions for children in different age groups. That would get them accustomed to using the soap. That would get them did it, did to love work? soap. Did not it work? Only accustomed to it. The fascinating thing to me was that after the first year, 22 million children were loving soap and the <laughs> sale of soap just went up. Well, if you say so. All right, an interesting story with an interesting payoff at the end there, but let's let's look over that a little bit um, because it tells us some interesting things. First, let's look at the way actually that uh, Edward Bernays described this story in Propaganda because he does go into a little bit more depth on this story here where on page 57 he talks about one of the most effective methods is the utilization of the group formation of modern society in order to spread ideas. An example of this is the nationwide competitions for sculpture in ivory soap open to school children in certain age groups as well as professional sculptors. A sculptor of national reputation found ivory soap an excellent medium for sculpture. Uh, the Procter & Gamble Company offered a series of prizes for the best sculpture in white soap. The contest was held under the auspices of the Art Center in New York City, an organization of high standing in the art world. School superintendents and teachers throughout the country were glad to encourage the movement as an educational aid for schools. Practice among school children as part of their art courses was stimulated. Contests were held between schools, between school districts, and between cities. Ivory soap was adaptable for sculpturing in the home because mothers saved the shavings and the imperfect efforts for laundry purposes. The work itself was clean. The best pieces are selected from the local competitions for entry in the national contest. contest. And he goes on to describe the, uh, the contest and the types of entries. Um, uh, 500 pieces at first, and then 2,500, then 4,000. So it was becoming a national 
phenomenon of this uh, being encouraged at various schools and taken up um, by the children. And it says a number of familiar psychological motives were set in motion in the carrying out of this campaign. The aesthetic, the comp competitive, the gregarious, much of, much of the sculpting was done in school groups. The gregarious, really. The snobbish, the impulse to follow the example of a recognized leader, which is not my definition of snobbish, but anyway. The exhibitionist, and last but by no means least, the maternal. All these motives and group habits were put in con concerted motion by the simple machinery of group leadership and authority, as if actuated by the pressure of a button. People began working for the client for the sake of gratification obtained in the sculpture work itself. This point is most important in successful propaganda work. The leaders who lend their authority to any propaganda campaign will do so only if it can be made to touch their own interests. There must be a disinterested aspect of the propagandists' activities. In other words, it is one of the functions of the Public Relations Council to discover at what points his client's interests coincide with those of other individuals or groups. What an interesting insight, isn't that? That, oh, here, it's all disinterested and it's all helpful. Oh, isn't it so nice and wonderful that the, they're finding ways to connect with their audience. But wait, what? What? Hold on. This is about selling soap and it's about helping children overcome their strong negative association with soap that they developed from the stinging eyes as children, at least according to what he's saying there. And he goes on to say, well, you know, it worked essentially for my client. And uh, that ultimately is the point of this. And everything else about this is artifice, essentially. And he talks about how they're appealing to their their maternal instinct or to their, uh, to their creative uh, in instinct or snobbishness or whatever other categories he posits there, which I don't quite agree with. But at any rate, here are the things that we're appealing to in order to ultimately sell more soap. I mean, that's what this is about. And uh, it, it, it is interesting how he goes to the, the New York, uh, the Art Center in New York City, an organization of high standing in the art world, etc. These are, uh, everything about this is about uh, things having high standing and having a, a, some sort of, you know, a, a ability to sway the public in terms of their habits. Um, now, the interesting part on this at the very end, as you saw, 22 million children were loving soap and the <laughs> sale of soap just went up. Well, if you say so. Uh, this is a matter of... Of record. We could probably uh, chart that. Dow Jones reports. Yeah. So, you will notice Letterman brings in the skepticism on that point. Really? 22 million children loving soap as the result of your psychological maneuver here? Is that is that true? Well, we can read the Dow Jones reports. So for Bernays, it's the bottom line is here. It's in, it's in the bottom line of the company, which is the, the only real metric for these types of campaigns, isn't it? But also, I think the Letterman skepticism there is actually healthy skepticism because when you watch this full eight-minute clip and other interviews that I, I've seen and that, that Bernays has given over the years um, on video, uh, that are widely available. There are more in-depth ones about his his life and work. I'll include a link to one of those uh, so that you can go and explore that if you're interested. But when when you hear him telling these stories, you do get a sense that this master of propaganda and PR was to a certain extent selling a product in these later interviews looking over his life and work. And that product was Edward Bernays. 
As in, I was such a great guy. Look at all these things that I did. And I made 22 million children love soap and all of this stuff that, really? Is that really true? Uh, you may have increased the bottom line for a soap company, but I'm not sure that's necessarily the same thing that you're, you're positing here. I think you might be blowing your own horn a little too much. And I think there is a sense of that, that one of Bernays's perhaps... His most important product was himself. He sold himself as this marketing genius and guru who doesn't seem to know what snobbish means and things like this. I don't know. I think that he is selling something as if he's selling soap or toothpaste or something like that. It is Bernays himself and the myth of Bernays. So I think we have to be wary of that when we encounter types like Bernays, who have a vested interest, at least in this point. Essentially, what is he doing here? He's not selling for a company. He's selling for himself and cementing himself in the history books as the father of modern-day propaganda. He's the creator of public relations as we know it, etc. Um, maybe he was in a bit of competition with Ivy Ledbetter Lee and people like that, so he wanted to put his name out there front and center. That's just something I, uh, I will leave you with. But let's explore one other clip that I found Funny, at any rate. Doctor, we're, uh, we're running out of time here, but I do want to show this photo. You mentioned your uncle, Sigmund Freud, and uh, maybe we can get a shot of this. And, and I'd like you to come back at another time, and we'll talk more about public relations and also about your famous family. But uh, pick yourself out of this photo and also tell the people where uh, oh, uh, well, Mr. Freud is. Well, Dr. Fr uh, Sigmund Freud is on the right. Right there. And he is traveling. That's you, isn't uh, it? That's me there. And who's this I'm, guy I'm right there? That's... that's his brother. That's his brother. That's his brother. You were and 10 years old. I was 10 yeah. years old. It was 1901. We have to, uh, let me interrupt. We'll do a commercial. We'll be right back. We're coming back. Here. I, I don't know. I kind of love the irony of that, that. The, this this consummate salesman, the the PR hack of the nineteen the twentieth century, was interrupted for a commercial break because he was getting a bit long winded. Come on, man, this is TV. Let's make it snappy. I don't know. I just find that to be a a humorous little moment given the uh, the context. Anyway. That's that's what we're going to go through today. As I say, go watch the full eight minute clip. I think there's a number of different things in there that uh, are interesting and to be pointed out. I hope you'll join me in that conversation at CorbettReport.com, where I invite the members to log in and leave their thoughts on this uh, this full eight minute clip. Um, but as I say, if you do not, if you're not familiar with Bernays and his work, uh, I would suggest you watch the Century of the Self the first part of The Century of the Self, at least, which I think is highly instructive and does cover Bernays's work. Uh, and I also suggest you look at some of the work that I've done um, on Adam Curtis as well, because I don't certainly don't take his work uh, at face value, but there are some instructive and interesting elements in there. Anyway, that's going to do it for today. Thank you again for joining me. I'll be talking to you again very soon. James Corbett, CorbettReport.com. The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report subscriber. A weekly newsletter featuring James Corbett's international forecaster editorial, recommended reading and viewing, discounts on Corbett Report DVDs, and once a month, a subscriber-only video. Sign up today to start receiving your copy at corbettreport.com support.